0: chapter twenty of the sorrows of a showgirl a story of the great white way by kenneth mcgaffey this librivox recording is in the public domain sabrina is married and goes on her wedding trip her comments on london and how her husband suppressed several professional gamblers on board the steamer the two expect to spend some time in england where we will leave them sabrina was married to wilbur the day after the friar festival and we acted in the capacity of best man and were very much in evidence in the feast that followed we imprinted chaste salutes on the lips of the blushing bride until the groom tore us asunder after the festivities sabrina and wilbur disappeared and for the past ten days their favorite cafés and loafing-places have known them not. We were just beginning to get nervous when the postman brought the following letter.
1: London. Dear Party, I guess maybe when you pipe off this effusion you will throw a foaming fit and fall in it. Me and Wilbur are now in the city of fogs, and take it from me, it's a bum habitation for even a dog. After you and the rest of the gangs did the the shoot-the-shoots under the table at the wedding breakfast, me and his knobs grabbed our makeup boxes and took it on the lope for the ferry station. I thought we were going to take a wedding tour to Ashbury Park or some of the other watering places. But what does Wilbur do but sidestep the ferry proposition? And we go prancing up to a dock where a boat about nine miles big was hitched, and before I had time to give the office to the cop on the beat, Wilbur rushes me up the plank and into the outfit. Honest, it was bigger than any of the Coney Island boats. I was under the impression for the nonce that it was the night boat up the Hudson, but I didn't see a steward I knew. A guy who had enough guilt on to be a major general in the National Guard came floundering up, and Wilbur gave him his real name, and the wop said, This way, please. Threw us into a young elevator, and we went up a couple of stories, and along a hall, until we came to a door, which the G threw open and said, This is your stateroom. Honest, I never saw such a drum. A great big room with a real bed— instead of those shelf things and off of the room a bath and we were only to be on the water five days can you beat it i was the one surprised pup and as soon as i hung my merry widow on the gas jet i asked wilbur about it he says kid we are on the ferry to europe and we are going to spend our honeymoon across the pond i says not for little sabrina you don't get her out of sight of new york and made a stab for the rail By the time I got to it, we were in the middle of the creek, and nothing in sight but a flock of tugboats and a bunch of yaps waving their mitts on the dock. Take it from me, if I hadn't been a bride, I would have cut up something scandalous. But it was too early in the matrimonial game to start any lumpy work, so all I did was to sit and pout, because I know I can always make a hit when I flash the pouting number. Gee, what could I do? Out there in the middle of the water with a long slushy walk back to the dock. So I did the next best thing, and gave the high sign to the steward to kick in with a few refreshments, which he very graciously did. Say, party, I can't tell you how I felt to see little old New York slip away in the distance. That old town is a great old burg, and as I was going to kick into some other country that I wasn't hept to, I naturally felt kind of bumly. We went busting by the Statue of Liberty, and then on out past the hook, and take it from me, if that steward hadn't come across with the refreshments just at that moment, I would have burst into tears." As it was, I could only address Wilbur in a few terse adjectives, and tell him what I thought of a person that would pull off such a low-down deal on an unsuspecting fluff. I want to state right now that though I was but a bride, I called him good and proper. The next morning we went down to breakfast. Say, they have about ten meals a day on one of these scows, and I've gained about twenty pounds already. There was a bunch of show people going over on the same boat, and Wilbur and I naturally cottoned to them. We didn't do a thing all day but sit on the deck and read— or walk around, or sing in the music room. Sure, they got a real live music room on board, as well as a conservatory, a gym, and an elevator. I don't know whether I plucked a quince or not. Wilbur kept insisting that I go to the table every time they turned in an alarm, and I was sort of holding off, because I didn't want to lance the poor boy for all his change on the way over. But he kept insisting that I eat, and acted so peevish when I didn't, that I thought, well, if he wants to spend his money, all right so I eat so much that I couldn't have crowded any more on me with a hypo. Come to find out, the food was included in the passage, and we had to pay for it whether we ate it or not. That's why I'm wondering if I plucked a quince. Wilbur was never tight before we were wed, and you can take it from me that if he starts to hold out or draw down now, there's going to be fine large doings in the Wilbur family from the female delegation. Wilbur was in the smoking room the other evening, and got to talking with what he thought were a couple of boobs, but come to find out they were wise guys, After sipping up a couple of slow ones, the guys propose a little poker game. Wilbur and two other boobs fall for the bunk, and they open up. Wilbur, after losing a little junk, gives the wise guys the office that he's jerry to the fact that they are playing with newspaper, and lets them know that if he ain't in on the frame-up, he'll belch. These two boobs are dirty with the evergreen, and Wilbur's got the wise guys so leery for fear he will tip his mitt, and they naturally slip him a big one every time they get a chance. Wilbur gets his money back, and everything is even all around, but the wise guys are the only ones who want to lay down. Wilbur hands them a game of cheerful chatter, and they don't dare quit. Foxy Wilbur sits there until 3 a.m., raking in their money, and incidentally corrals some that belongs to the wealthy Wops. In the meantime, I am doing the earnest conversation act with an old dowager that I met the second day out, and she is telling me about her country home in Devonshire, or some other one of these sure things. She sort of took a fancy to me, and insisted that Wilbur and I should run out there for a weekend, which end of the week she didn't say, but I guess if we go Sunday we are safe. To hear this old dame tell it, she must own about nine million acres up in the country, and her husband has all kinds of wild animals—lions, tigers, elephants, and all that truck that are trained to be shot. She called it a shooting lodge, probably a branch of the Elks. This old party ceases her harangue, and I beat it to the air felt and I'm pounding my ear when Wilbur kicks in with a souse on. I come out of the hay and am getting ready to call him to a fair you well when he flashes his bundle. My anger vanished in a moment, and I just reach out and cop the coin and roll over and goes to sleep. Wilbur sleeps on the floor until I took compassion on him and rolled him on the lounge. Talk about your wifely devotion, what? I count the roll in the morning before I slip it to the purser for safekeeping, and it assayed $1,245, which is not half bad for a night's work. The wise guys come around and offer Wilbur a hundred dollars a night to stay out of the smoking room, and he won't do it, but tells them if he catches them playing another game during the trip, he will turn loose the long rebel yell. Now the two wise guys are sitting on deck reading The Lives of the Saints and making faces at Wilbur every time he goes romping by. Ain't Wilbur the saucy thing? The last night on board we gave a concert for the benefit of the seamen's Fund, or something like that, and I claim that it was a classy affair. I appeared, and without any brag or ostentation, I can truthfully say that I scored a great personal triumph. It wasn't so much what I did, but the winsome manner in which I did it. Get that? Wilbur was the manager of the affair, and didn't shake down a cent. What do you think of that? He said that a sailor needed all the money he could get, and he would be the first man not to take it from them. I made my big hit at the concert in reciting Laska. One of the mates told me that somebody does Laska on every trip, but I was the first one that furnished scenery by letting down my hair. I wonder if he was kidding me. A great many of the ladies on board spent all their time in playing Bridget Whist, and after watching them for a couple of afternoons, they offered to teach me the game with a moderate limit. I am hept to this poker thing, and can look a pat hand in the face without a quiver of the lip. But I must blushingly admit that I thought I was in for a good old-fashioned trimming when I got up against those dames. It cost me about fifty dollars to learn, and then I had a streak of beginner's luck, and before the whistle blew for dinner I was several hundred to the velvet. Two of the Janes put up a horrible holler about it being a friendly game, and wanted their money back. I was going to give it to them, because I didn't want them to look any older, but one of the others took my part and told me to hold on to the gross. The three that didn't get theirs back got out their little hammers, and for a while I had no one to talk to but myself or Wilbur, and he was trying to dope out a scheme whereby he could paste three sheets on the ocean and catch the incoming tourists. I left him trying to compose a one-word wireless that would explain the whole proposition to Fred Thompson. We came in sight of England, or Ireland, or some of those foolish islands, early in the morning, and they didn't look so much. Barren Island has got him faded for smell. There was nothing but long, white chalk cliffs that a good man with a bucket of whitewash could paint in a week. We got into Liverpool and loafed around town for a couple of hours, and saw nothing that would cause any excitement. The natives look just the same and dress just the same as they do in America but you have to go some to understand what they say. Gee, you should pipe the hertics they use for railroad cars in this man-England's country. Instead of making the grand entrance from the end, you sneak in at the side, and sit in a kind of a pew thing, making faces at someone across the aisle. Wilbur got sore, because he blew himself for a couple of tickets, and the conductor—I mean, the guard—didn't come around to collect them until we go nearly into London. He wanted to bet an Englishman, on the other side of the hall, five dollars. me, I mean a pound. That he could make the same trip for nothing and hand the guard a group of chatter that would get him all the way into town. When we crawled out of the caboose in London, we thought it was midnight, but on asking a cop, my word, I mean Bobby, he said it was nothing but a fog. Wilbur told him that if he wanted him to see much of his blooming city, he would have to bring around a dark lantern. We called a cab and started for the Savoy. All true Americans, when they go to London, stop at the Savoy. We drove for about an hour, the horse gumshoeing his way through the dark until we came to the hotel. Wilbur asked the cab driver how much it was, and he named the sum, that if you even suggested to a New York cabby he would have you pinched. After registering, Wilbur called Marcus Mayer up on the telephone. He grabbed down the receiver, and after waiting for about half an hour, some dame said, Are you there? Wilbur's nanny took the hurdle, and he answered, Where did you think I was, playing pinnacle with the king? After a sharp struggle, he managed to get Marcus's hangout, but he wasn't in, so Wilbur started out to hunt the American bar alone in about fifteen minutes he came back on the run with a couple of bobbies about two jumps behind him it seems that wilbur had found the american bar and walked up to it and asked for a manhattan cocktail because he was getting homesick and the bartender said will you have it made with scotch or irish sir naturally wilbur hit him with the first thing that came handy which happened to be a heavy beer mug the bartender was a short sport and instead of trimming him with a bung starter turns loose a yell for the law so Wilbur lopes on, carelessly knocking over a couple of cops on his way out. The two officers that followed him to the room were strong for sending him to the booby hatch, but I have the presence of mind to slip them each a piece of change, and they exit laughing. That's all that has happened so far, though we just got in town last night, and I'm writing this before breakfast. Oh no, there's something else. Last night Wilbur and I started down to dinner, and they shoot him back to put on his evening clothes he met some of the american bunch after supper and it took them three hours to tell all the things they did to georgia cohen when he was over here ted marks is right here with his hair in a braid and the white carnation we will stay here for about a week and then caper over to paris i got a hunch that wilbur is fixing to leave me in the outskirts because i heard him say something about the foolishness of taking a cheese sandwich to a banquet we'll write again soon platonically yours sabrina P.S wilbur is in another row downstairs and i got to go and see what's coming off s
0: end of chapter twenty end of the sorrows of a showgirl a story of the great white way by kenneth mcgaffey